Welcome to Resilience Unraveled. Hi everybody and welcome to Resilience Unraveled, a podcast that examines all aspects of personal and organisational resilience. A huge all-encompassing subject that covers the ability to thrive in life by harnessing your cognitive, emotional, physiological and contextual abilities. I share stories from people who have thrived despite remarkable obstacles, as well as highly successful practitioners and experts across a range of topics. And this podcast introduces their amazing stories and expertise, as well as my own reflections, perspectives, strategies and tips, which come from my own synthesis of themes and trends from wider learning. You can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and eBooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com. Then search for Resilience Unraveled. So, let's get started. Enjoy the show. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to my next guest, who's Nick Johnson, who um, is sitting in front of me with a, a gorgeous accent and... Um, it doesn't seem to link with the place he's from. So good morning, Nick. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you so much, Russell. Indeed, I'm from Sweden, but I'm in Singapore today. <laughs> so what's, uh, what's Sweden doing in Singapore? Well, I left Sweden in the 90s and I wanted to learn English, actually. And I didn't go to the UK. I ended up in Australia. So that can be may- maybe questionable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a very funny way of putting it, yes. Yes, the Aussies have their own idea of English, don't they? So it's for, not as weird as the Americans, but let's not go into that any further. So um, <laughs> what, what are you all about then, Nick? What's, what's, what's your background? What is it you're going to talk to us about today? Yes, Russell. So basically, I, when I moved to Australia, I studied over there, played a bit of golf, and then I ended up in uh, Southeast Asia. So I lived and worked in Southeast Asia since 2004 in various managing director roles and so on, leading big international companies. Um, so I worked mainly in Indonesia, Vietnam, and Thailand. And looking back at my career, though, I realized that perhaps I was quite lonely at the top, as they say. I uh, I can now see that I isolated myself, perhaps I elbowed my way to the top, which many executives do. Mm-hmm. Um, these days, though, and what I can talk about today, Russell, my life has changed. I left the corporate world five years ago. And looking back then again at my career, I also know that it's many other senior executives just like myself who find themselves in that isolation trap. Yes. And it's interesting having been a CEO myself, it's actually, um, it's a very odd place to be because you think it's a place full of power and authority and such like. And um, as one person said to me, the only thing you can do as a CEO is to play with the structure and affect the pay. And really, that's not that much, really. But but your own background is actually quite fascinating because the way you coped with some of this isolation and such like initially was to turn to a, a sort of a, um, an enhancing substance. Is that so? Yes, Russell, I mean... I tried to, you know, balance my life like many other people. And it was many times, you know, working hard and then it was exercise. And But then life has its up and down. And when I went through a divorce in 2015 and 
I felt, you know, even more isolated, not only at work, but suddenly also at home, uh, then it was natural that I needed to go out and meet some people. So after work, instead of going to the gym, it was easy to go to the bar, having a couple of drinks. And while that was okay, in the short term, it became a bad habit. I over time exchanged and the exercise, I stopped my gym membership and became a regular at the bar. And with that was a downward spiral. And of course, the thing, the thing with anything like that is a, a spiral is downwards, but it can be, and you've reversed it. So what was the point at which you re realized that that change needed to take place? Uh, it was very slow. It was around 2015 to 18. So I didn't really realize it. And people also thought, you know, my friends and so said it was good and unique. Good to see you enjoying yourself. Good that you're coming out. You know, we were, we're worried about you you're just exercising all the time. We didn't see you much. So therefore, you know, I, it, it was all natural and therefore I didn't realize it before it was too late and at that stage you know I, I really had put on a lot of weight I was overweight and uh, I didn't exercise at all my health had really gone down and had a, a hypertension my blood pressure was off and that was you know I was about 40 42 years of age and in poor health and then with the stress and everything else at work it just added up to the point where you know I, I couldn't actually stop the alcohol. It was my uh, dose and they uh, had to become, you know, what they say that morning drink here, which is, you know, the, the terror with that when you realize that you are addicted to something and you have to have it. And, and, and I kept that, of course, secret silent for quite some time, because, uh, you know, that's the last thing you want to admit to someone is that you have an addiction that you have these issues. But eventually I, I hit rock bottom and that's when I, I had to admit it to myself and other people to get out of it. Yes. And then once and that's the thing is once you admit it and realize it, you can do something about it. But it's the it's that realization, which is really interesting. And it's interesting that you you, you sort of talk about it. It creeps up on you. Um, you know, people say that you seem to be coping. You have to admit it yourself that you're, you know, you're an alcoholic or you have a problem with drinking and you seem, you know, it's quite silent. But. It's the same as loneliness, isn't it? It does creep up on CEOs. You sort of look as if you're coping. It seems as if everything's okay. And then suddenly they realise actually that this is a problem because until you realise it's a problem, you don't know it's a problem, do you? And um, and I, I, I was interested in your phrase that you we were chatting about just before we started when you said you've written a book, as I know, based on this idea that it's lonely at the top, that phrase. So maybe you can pack that a bit for us. Yes, because what I did then after I had hit rock bottom and, uh, and admitted to myself and I was into my recovery, you know, I wanted to know, was I the only one here? Was it how common was this? So what I did then was I put out a survey to other senior executives to find out, you know, how lonely are they in their roles and so on. And I'd be happy to talk you through some of these findings uh, today sure. with you, Russell, and the listeners. And the first finding then that really stood out to me was, and this was in 2019, so we're talking before the pandemic, actually about 30% of the senior executives I surveyed actually admitted that they were suffering of loneliness inside the workplace. And uh, just to add to that, I went back to the same group in 2020 when the pandemic was there and it had doubled to 59%. So that actually shows that I was not alone, Russell. What sort of de what's the demographic of these leaders? What sort of organized size of organizations are they in? So it's mainly senior executives, the C-suite uh, for working for big multinationals here in Singapore. So many of them will be Europeans, Americans, you know, regional directors uh, running the big companies. So they're displaced from their home territories in, in the first place. So, so that's interesting because they need a different sort of support sometimes, don't they, without noticing that. 
Yes, absolutely. And especially as expats and away from their country. And then if you feel isolated in your way and you don't have even at home, perhaps your family close with you, maybe you yeah. just have your nearest family. But many of them, of course, was uh, separated also by COVID. Someone might have visited another country and then you were uh, also stuck due to that. Yes. Um, but then I wanted to just ask a little bit more, Russell. So when I had that and I knew about the loneliness, I asked them, is this something that you would talk with your HR? Would you talk to your boss about it internally in the company? And of course, the answer is no. 84% wouldn't talk about this. And that doesn't surprise me at all. Uh, and often the problem is that regional leaders, particularly or CEOs, are seen to be the people that need to be the strongest. And they, and they seem to inadvertently, um, stereotypically role play this idea that asking for help is a sign of weakness, don't they? And and some people deal with this by having executive coaches, which is absolutely fine. But it is hard to trust internal bosses and internal um, HR, particularly, I, I would suspect. So who did they turn to if it wasn't the internal world? Well, uh, Russell, that was the next question here. Then, ah, you know, uh, do, do, you, do you seek professional help for it? And again, it was 75% no. Wow. So that just means that they are coping by uh, themselves, you know. And I have no understood and through some of the interviews is that actually during the pandemic, a few good things happened because suddenly you could see a psychologist or therapist online. We are just like we are on Zoom today. You could start to reach out without having to go and be seen, perhaps waiting in a waiting room somewhere. Um, so this uh, anonymity is there now. Uh, and that's uh, that's at least some progress. But still, people are reluctant when it's mentally, you know, as you said, people seem to deny it. And the stigma is still huge surrounding this topic yes okay so what else was in the research well basically i mean what i uncovered was that many of these leaders actually are what i called in my book then anxious overachievers just like myself looking back at myself i was not very good in high school and i had to go overseas to study at university and once i finally got a taste on winning getting some scholarship topping some classes i wanted to bring this with me in the workplace and as i said before perhaps elbowing my way to the top getting the power getting the promotions getting the packages with it and this is exactly what i saw when i interviewed also the executives that many of them were anxious and the way to prove themselves uh, was then to achieve and really to get that power in the company. So, uh, so we have many leaders walking around there being very, very anxious. Yes, and it's that problem, isn't it? That and and I'd be interested to know if there's a gender split here because often men define themselves by their work, don't they, rather than by what they have. Uh, sorry, by what they have rather than who they are. And it's that thing about well, if the job's lonely and such like, it's all it's you know you, that's that's what you've striven for. That's what your sense of achievement is linked to. And if that and if the realization of that's somehow hollow and empty, that can actually have quite a, a negative in, impact on a person. Not just anxiety as well, but it can go into the other side of things as well. So I wondered if you come across any of that as well. Yes, I did. Through the interviews, uh, you know, I realized that it seemed like women had a few close friends they would be quite vulnerable with. And they will talk about perhaps some of the challenges they have, some issues they are facing. And therefore, if you're... Ex exposing yourself to a friend then naturally that friend would help you so if you're not well maybe they drag you to a doctor and doing the right things they're guiding you but what it seems like as men and i was just like this i would have good friends i would go and play a game of golf i would go and watch some sport on tv having a couple of drinks sharing 
and having a good time together. That was my way of relaxing, not telling them and bothering my friends with the issues I was going through at work. That is something I rather forgot when I left the office and then I go and have a few drinks, have a good time. And then perhaps I wake up in the middle of the night worrying about that or the problem is still there the next morning. I was very bad at having someone to talk to about my issues. And that is also what I realized when I interviewed uh, executives for my book. And I'm wondering where, the, where this comes from, because I don't believe that men are genetically wired differently to women in this area. Um, and in fact, it's like the old emotional intelligence thing. Men are just as emotionally intelligent as long as they're skilled up to be so. And I just wonder whether, you know, there's just been a cultural thing, uh, whether, you know, the man's role has always been this particular thing, or there's been an acceptance that men shouldn't talk to each other or whatever it is. But I mean, the good thing about the current generation is we're breaking that down. But I mean, what I mean, you're from you're from Sweden. You're seeing Asia. You've seen Australia. What 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 do you see over there? That sort of what drives this sort of this sort of attitude for men not to be able to deal with things. Yeah, I think it comes back to parenting, Russell, and you touched on it there that the new generation is breaking down these barriers and changing it. And I can certainly see that. Um, where in Sweden, where I grew up, we never spoke about emotions. That was not part of, of the, on the agenda. And it wouldn't matter for boys or girls when I grew up. Uh, but I think yeah, as perhaps the girl grew up and they are in the teenagers, they got some close friends and at least they shared with them as I didn't share with any of my friends, my feelings. I didn't talk about feelings that I grew up as a teenager. And if I should then look at, you know, in Asia, uh, people are very very quiet about what's happening in the family there's a lot of stigma talking about mental health and addictions and so on it sits even tighter and people are really really keeping this to themselves in asia more so than in the western world where we are speaking up a lot at the moment yes and it's peculiar isn't it because there's a stereotypical parenting view where you see women being extremely tough on daughters you know, quite, um, um, you know, ruthless in the way that they treat them and they'll, they'll cut them down to size. They'll be quite tough with them, but extraordinarily indulgent with their sons. So the sons never really get this sense of um, accountability that daughters get in a strange sort of way. And yet what they get from their fathers is a sort of a remote, often remoteness and a sort of a role model, which is also about uh, striving and such like. But their daughters are often extremely indulged. So you get this strange bi-parenting thing going on where actually what ends up with blokes is that they, they're they either massively narcissistic or overindulged or quite infantile, really, in their way of being able to handle these subjects because they've never had a role model from the parenting side. And if you look at attachment theory and all these different things, that supports this view that men need to be parented differently in the coming world. But, you know, that's a big, that's quite a big shift. But it's but it's important at work, isn't it? Because often your first leader is often your parent substitute, isn't it? And this for me is about how do you create an adult culture where people start to understand that, you know, just deciding that you don't like something is not okay. You still have to come to work and perform. You know, this is the beginning of actually our way into the work work world. And, and if leaders at the tops of organisations are lonely, they're, they're going to they're going to find it hard, aren't they, to inculcate that sort of positive adult culture with supporting mechanisms right through. I just wonder where the change takes place, you know? 
Yeah, and, and that's a good reflection. Uh, I say that vulnerability has to start from the top. I mean, no one is going to go and knock the, the, the door of the boss and open up about some issues or challenges they're going through if the, uh, the leader themselves had never been vulnerable. And I came through this when I interviewed executives for my book, and I can mention one example of a managing director, a lady who for a big international bank, you know, and when I interviewed her the first time, she didn't share much with me. And I thought, well, what she shared, she felt a bit isolated sometimes. It would not make it into the book. But then she sent me an SMS a few days later and said, can we meet again? I went to see her and she started to break out in tears immediately. And I was just quiet, giving her the space. And then she said, Nick, I need to talk to you. I rehearsed my own suicide twice. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was completely shocked. But the fact that she here admitted it to me, of course, this was also the start of her recovery. Uh, she promised me and she also executed after that. She uh, she called up a therapist who had a discussion with her. They called in her husband. They had a dialogue about all of this. And this has all passed. And she's now back in full recovery. She's taken a year sabbatical leave and all because she's decided to break this loneliness, to decided to speak up. And that is what we're talking about here. It's about this vulnerability as a leader. And she was then open with her company about this, that I need to take a break. I need this time for myself. And people will understand it. I don't know why we are so scared of admitting to others around us that we're going through a challenging time. It shouldn't have to go as far as this woman, uh, you know, taking the, the, almost the step of ending her self-life. And I don't know how many times I heard this when I interviewed for, for the book that people are, you know, almost on the line. Yeah, but the thing, I think it's what's interesting, though, because the world of work is changing. So uh, I see increasingly anachronistic styles of leadership, which were in place before the COVID, um, which really didn't work that well. And yet management schools are still, you know, pushing the same ideas. And I think we need a new sort of paradigm for leadership, um, you know, rolling forward. And maybe your body of work plays into this because I think it's a, an important thing. There was another book um, whose title really escapes me at the moment, but he talked about the idea, or they talked about the ideas of uh, career-limiting mistakes and how that drove into uh, loneliness. I don't know if you've come across that book. Uh, I'll look it up for the for the links. Um, and that was all about executives, you know, being actually terrified that once they'd reached where they were, that they would get thrown out. And so this, because actually the, 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 the easiest thing to do is make a mistake. And one of the biggest things in culture, isn't it, is that it's not how, how many brilliant decisions you take. It's how few poor decisions you take, which is what leads to this dumbing down the, in the average. And of course, a sign of weakness is a mistake, isn't it? So, you know, admitting yes. a weakness, admitting the sign that we're struggling is a mistake and we need to change that. And I actually have to fundamentally, you know, put some of the blame at HR here because I think they've not thought long and hard about this as the people who are, you know, arbiters of the people well-being. And I don't think the well-being is linked to performance often. I'm not sure that um, HR practice is linked to performance, it's linked to, you know, God knows what it's linked to. And also that the fact that HR sits within the organization is a real point of weakness for HR as well. It needs to somehow be external to be able to hold not just well, the well-being side of an organization to account, but the ethics of it as well. Because actually, if you have a leader who's lonely, ethical decisions start to be compromised don't they because that leader becomes weaker so i just wonder if you think that there's there's a bigger problem here there's it's you know it's it's but but the thing is like you said with your with your drinking it's that 
we need to admit it, don't we? Because once we admit it, we can start doing something about it. But I don't know whether anyone will admit it. I mean, mm. you have. Do you think there's a? Do you see a sign of movement in um, the current generation as well as the the newer generation? I I see a, a positive change here, and in my own company now we have what we call a fail fast policy. We're really trying to encourage people, you know, as soon as you make a small mistake, admit it and share what can we learn from this. Because if you have that culture where people actually are encouraged to share what mistake they made or what they uncovered and what they learned with it, then I think, uh, you know, people will not be so scared. And we, we grab the mistake before it's too costly. And when we do our budgets, for example, to the various departments, the marketing department will have this is your budget and then you have X percent of a test and trial budget is what we call them. So they should not be scared to use that budget to try new vendors, try new new things, because it, if it doesn't work out, it's OK. It's about what we learn from this exercise. Yeah. So that's what we do internally. And I think that's the shift. That's where many newer organizations are, are going and we need to go that way. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think the trouble is that, um, that there are different leadership practices which are needed for multinationals through to different small startups and i don't think people understand that as well i think i mean i've had this argument many years with private equity houses that one style of leadership suits everything and i think i've started to come around to the point of view that actually i've been wrong the whole time you can't develop people all the way through um oh well you can but it's uh, more problematical than having specialist leaders at different stages in organizational you know places because it'd be interesting for you as a leader of a multinational company to just to go and work in a small startup, maybe with three or four people. I mean, it would be very different, wouldn't it? You can, I imagine, you can, you can conceptualize the idea that it would be wholly different. Uh, I mean, how would your, how would your toolkit, how would your skill set cope with such a big change? Exciting. Yes, and and that's what I basically have done in recent years here, Russell. I I left the corporate world a, a few years ago, and what I'm working with now is running confidential peer groups for senior executives Good. and also for business owners. A bit like the Vistage model, which you have in the UK, we're running something similar here in Singapore now. And you know, in order to get people to open up there, they have signing on disclosure agreement, no competitors, and by creating this, you know, so let's say confidential space where they feel safe, then we're trying to work with them to open up about the challenges they're going through. Yeah, and I like the idea of fail fast and test and trial and budgets and things, because actually that is the fundamental nature of resilience. It's the idea that somehow, you know, you've made a mistake, you learn from it. You, well, first of all, you have accountability for you. And accountability is the, for me, the most important thing of an adult culture. The um the idea of networking is quite interesting though, and it's by itself because you can propagate um a set of messages in the way that you choose your speakers and such like to actually have a have a sort of an overriding principle about what the networking is about. Do you find you've got to be careful with that, or do you just allow the content to evolve? Well. We say that basically we are the administrators. You come to these meetings and approach it almost like it's your own private advisory board, or you would approach it as you would with a management meeting in your company. But this is your external management team. You come with your bullets on that you need to cover, and we put that on the table for the moderator and the facilitator to then discuss. So you should ideally leave a session like this, you know, feeling that you know the stress or the pressure on your shoulders has been lifted. And yeah. the thing is that what we see is that. Just for the leaders to start speaking, to talk, you see something lifting from them yeah. already. Even if they don't get the answers, the fact that they spoke up, they get that sympathy already. 
Yeah, that's really important because that is the point, isn't it? It's that idea that we have a shared experience and be, you become unlonely, you become lonely, you become embattled and you lose that perspective because you do believe that you're fighting this lonely battle and you're a little trench on your own, don't you? And it's a horrible place to be. There's no, I mean, we talk about loneliness being one of the curses of the modern age and we don't think that executives have it. So that's why we have to watch out because that perception is very dangerous. So as well as the networking, I know you've written the book, so uh, you did talk about a bit more about the book. So can you tell us a little bit more about what the book's about, what we'll expect to read in it, what's it called, where do we find it? Yes, so basically, as I was in my recovery then back in 2018 and in, in 2019 when I did a survey and so on, I, you know, I took it to some of the journalists and they were very interested. I went on live radio, spoke about it and so on. That's when I realized I was talking on a topic that people don't like to talk about. People like to show off. They like to talk about successes. Here I'm talking about myself going through recovery. I'm talking about, you know, having been fallen into alcohol addiction. And that was something that no one had spoken about before. So I thought, well, I need to do that then. I need, and that is what I'm passionate about doing now, Russell. I'm trying to help people. I'm trying to give back and help helping people who also fall in this because I realize that you know life goes up and down we can everyone can lose a job or a relationship can you know break and then we need to have some tools so I was blessed that I got the gift of desperation as they say when I came into the recovery program I got beautiful support by volunteers who were there and helped me so I was sort of blessed that I had this alcohol problem because if I didn't have that I'm not sure if I would have received all this help so my book is all about that it is sort of the steps you can go through to get out of isolation to get out of the loneliness trap and it's through my own experience how I went through it but also through executives who I interviewed who've been there what did they do to come through and how did they come out and it's I'm talking through five steps in the book to go through this yes uh well do you want to so basically the five steps are about taking stock asking for health getting healthy nurturing healthy relationships finding your purpose I mean that all makes an enormous amount of step but but for sense but the 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 key is that awareness. I love that phrase, the gift of desperation. And I think if if executives can notice that that desperation is a gift, then actually they can understand that this is the time to take action. As if there were a huge crisis affecting the organization in terms of either process or a market threat or whatever. It's it's as important, is it, to see one of the organizational assets, you know, under siege. The fact it's a mental siege doesn't matter. That's I think that's important, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And Russell, if anyone of also the listeners want to look up the book, it's on Amazon. It was actually a bestseller in the UK in both men's health and mental health. So if you go on Amazon, you can look up Barnes and Nobles also have it. Uh, it's called Executive Loneliness. <coughs> Sorry, I just caught me mid cough there. <laughs> I thought we were going to go a little bit longer there, and I just forgot to press the button. No problem. Brilliant. So, and also, if people want to find out more about your work, about the network and such like, Nick, where, um, where would they find your website? What's the or URL? Yeah, so it's nickjohnson.com, and it's a Swedish spelling there, N-I-C-K-J-O-N-S-S-O-N.com. That's yeah, that's an unusual spelling, isn't it? Proper, proper Swedish spelling. That's very good. Well, it's been an absolute joy to talk to you today. And thank you for coping with me for a start. But um, I really enjoy what you've said there. I think it's very relevant. And, um, you know, thank you so much. And good luck with the rest of the work that you're putting together. Thank you so much. You take care. Have a good day. Hi, everybody. 
I hope you found that episode useful and interesting. Feedback is always welcomed, and if you are in the mood to subscribe to us or even leave a comment on iTunes or Stitcher, that would be amazing. If you want to suggest ideas or even people you would like me to interview, then reach out to us at qedod.com forward slash contact. As I said earlier, you can go to qedod.com forward slash podcast for show notes or follow the links. And you can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and ebooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com, then search for Resilience Unraveled. I look forward to being in your ear next time around. Take care.